Well, I'm guessing that most of us can identify with Molly, the woman we just met in the video. And just to be clear, Molly is a fictional character. Any resemblance to an actual person living or dead or serving on our Wilmington campus is purely coincidental, <laughs> all right? She wanted to be sure about that. But I'm guessing that many of us can remember how it felt when we first came to understand that God loved us just as we are, that he wanted us to be his child through faith in his son Jesus, that we could be forgiven for every mistake and failure, past, present, and future, that we could enjoy life with God in this life and in the life to come. And all of it was free, paid for in full by the death of Christ on the cross. All we had to do was believe it and receive it. You remember what great news that was. What a relief. No more guilt, no more shame, no more fear, no more burden. Do you remember how free you felt, how, how loved you felt? It was like you had a whole new lease on life. And all of it was because of grace, undeserved favor. It was one of the best feelings in the world. But then something happened. As time went by, you began to realize that you hadn't changed quite as much as you'd hoped you would have changed, and that life wasn't quite as different as you thought it was going to be. You still had to do homework and go to work. You still had to pay the bills and clean the house and eat healthy and drive the carpool and all the things that human beings have to do to make it in this world. And on top of that, now that you are Christian, you also had to read your Bible and go to church and volunteer in the nursery and give a chunk of your money away. And suddenly, grace seemed a little harder to come by and not quite as amazing as it once was. Now, it could be you've never really had that experience. Maybe, maybe you've never really heard all that much about grace before, or maybe you've heard about it but uh, aren't quite ready to believe it or uh, aren't quite ready to admit that you need it. But I'm still guessing that, that all of us can identify with the pressure to perform, to live up to other people's expectations of us, to our own expectations of ourselves, the kind of person we want to be, the kind of life we want to live. Throw in a few Facebook posts of other people's happy families, a few LinkedIn announcements of other people's promotions, and we can begin to feel like we just don't measure up and never really will. All this to say, I'm guessing we could all use a little more grace in our lives. Favor, forgiveness, freedom. But is that kind of grace really possible? Can you experience that kind of grace every day in this world in which we live? Now, those are the questions we're going to be going after for these next five weeks here as we continue our series called Experiencing Grace. Now, for the past five weeks, we've been talking about how we experience grace as a church, as members of this community of faith called Grace Chapel. And so we've talked about worship and group life and serving the body and reaching out to the world around us. Beginning today and in the next few weeks, we'd like to get a little more personal. 
What does grace mean to us as human beings? What changes does it make on the inside? How does it operate in everyday life? And how can grace be amazing every day like it was when we first believed? So to answer those questions, we're going to go to a book of the Bible that we, I don't think we've ever really studied before in depth here at Grace, even though we've dipped into it from time to time. It's the book of Galatians, another one of those letters from the Apostle Paul that we find in the New Testament. This one is written to, uh, to believers who, like Molly, like many of us, sometimes forget just how amazing grace really is. So it's a challenging letter, but it's also a profound one that can have a profound effect on our lives and our church and our world. So, so we're going to look at the opening verses of Galatians today. We'll be in chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 9. And this is actually part 1 of a two-part message that we'll continue next week. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Now, a little background here. Paul, of course, was the former persecutor of the church, who after his conversion to Christ became the first missionary of the church, so to speak, traveling throughout the Roman Empire, bringing the good news of Christ to the, to the empire, and primarily to the Gentile world, to those who were not Jews. Now, this may be the earliest of all Paul's letters that we have, maybe as early as 48 or 49 AD. And Galatia was in a part of the world that is familiar to us today as Turkey, part of the world we're hearing quite a bit about lately. On his second missionary journey, Paul planted some churches in the southern portion of what we now call Turkey or Galatia. Now, Paul's careful to point out here that he's an apostle. He doesn't always begin this way, but he does this time. He's reminding his readers that he was personally commissioned by the risen Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Now, he's doing that because he's going to bring some very strong words of rebuke to this Galatian congregation, and he doesn't want anyone questioning his credentials. Now, I realize that with texting and email today, most of us don't write letters all that often. But when we do, when we sit down with pen and paper and actually write a letter, we tend to have pretty standard ways of beginning those personal letters. Something like, hi, so-and-so. Hope this letter finds you well and enjoying the fall season. We're all fine here in Boston, cheering for the Patriots and celebrating the Yankees' elimination. <laughs> Something like that. And yes, I stayed up till the bitter end. <laughs> we have standard ways of starting our letters, just as kind of a formula. And the same thing was true in the ancient world. And, and Paul is following a very standard formula. So after identifying himself and his readers, he then offers some words of blessing. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now those two words, grace and peace, were customary words to use in the opening of a letter in the ancient world. Jews would typically use the word peace, shalom, the wholeness and wellness of God. Greeks would typically use the word grace, as if they were asking the gods to show favor on their readers. Paul uses both 
terms, grace and peace. Not just because he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles, but because those two words together, grace and peace, capture the essence of the Christian faith. Peace, shalom, is that Old Testament word for, for salvation. All the blessings of God. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace with ourselves, peace with the world, shalom. This is what God wants for all people everywhere, then and now, peace. And grace is the means by which that peace comes to us. Paul's reminding his readers that, that this, this salvation doesn't come to us because of our goodness, but because of God's goodness. But he doesn't stop there just reminding them of these, offering these words of blessing. He goes on to remind them how that grace and peace came to them and to us, that it came by the work of Christ on the cross. As he puts it, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. So he reminds them and us of our sins, of the many, many ways, large and small, that we fall short of and turn away from the good things God created us to be and to do, our sins. And those sins separate us. They cut us off from God and his good purpose in our lives. In other words, left to ourselves, we're in trouble. We're in trouble in this life and in the life to come. But God saw the trouble that we were in, Paul says, and sent his son to come and rescue us. Even though we'd gotten ourselves into that mess, he took responsibility for our mistakes and sent his son to save us, to actually die on the cross, absorbing the consequences, bearing responsibility for all of our sins and failures. And because of what Christ has done, we can be forgiven. We can be rescued from that darkness, from that lostness, and be brought into the light of a new day. As I was thinking about this and turning that word rescue over in my mind, thinking about rescue stories, I, I remembered the pretty dramatic rescue story that we all followed just about a year or so ago of those soccer boys, that soccer team in Thailand, who found themselves trapped in a cave, flooded cave, hundreds of feet underground. Those 12 boys and their coach spent the better part of two weeks huddled in the dark on a ledge, miles away from the only entrance to the cave. Now, they'd gotten themselves into that mess, but there was no way they were going to get themselves out of it. Their only hope was from, for someone on the outside to come and find them, rescue them, and bring them to safety. And after... Days, weeks even of worry and strategy and planning, the world watched in fear and wonder as a team of Thai Navy SEAL divers made their way through those flooded underground passageways and brought all 12 of those boys and their coach to safety. It was a remarkable rescue, watched and celebrated by people all over the world but it came at a cost, didn't it? One Navy diver, a volunteer, who lost his life 
in the effort to save those boys. Well, in a similar way, Paul is reminding us, we too were lost in a cave of our own making, trapped by a flood of failure and foolishness. We got ourselves into that darkness, but we couldn't get ourselves out. Our only hope was for someone to come and rescue us, to bring us to safety and freedom, and that someone was Jesus, who by the will of the Father came into this world and at the cost of his own life saved us. And just to stretch the metaphor a little bit farther, Imagine for a moment that it wasn't a Navy rank-and-file sailor who gave his life. Imagine it was the king of Thailand himself who said, I'll take responsibility for those boys and laid down his life in order to rescue them. That is what Christ has done for us. And it was all because of grace. Like those boys... There is nothing we could contribute to our rescue. Like those boys, there's nothing we can do but hang on to our rescuer and trust him to bring us out of the darkness and into the light. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a fool, a sinner like me. Imagine how those boys must have felt when they stepped out of that cave, out of the darkness, into the sunshine, breathing fresh air, united with their families. What relief, what, what freedom. Surely, life would never be the same for them again. Surely, they would never take another day for granted. Surely, those 12-year-old boys would never do anything reckless or foolish again. I can't speak for those boys, but from what I know of human nature, what I know of my own nature, I far too easily forget the amazing grace that rescued me and slip back into old ways of trying to perform, trying to do it myself, try to live and rescue myself, and go back to living like it never happened. Well, that's what happened to Molly, our not-so-fictional Christ follower. And that's what was happening to the Galatians. Not long after hearing and receiving this good news of God's grace from the Apostle Paul, they quickly seemed to forget that it was all about grace. So let's pick up the letter again at verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Well, what happened was that soon after Paul and his team left Galatia, some misguided teachers came in 
and began to tell these new believers that it wasn't enough simply to trust Christ to save them. They now had to keep the laws of Judaism, specifically circumcision and the dietary laws and, and keeping the Sabbath. Now, this, of course, was especially difficult for the Gentile believers who had never, weren't even familiar with these laws, let alone having ever lived by them before. Well, this was not good news. Remember, the word gospel simply means good news. Paul says, you've turned away from a gospel of grace and towards a gospel of works, which is really no gospel at all because it's not good news. It was, it was leading them right back into those old ways of relating to God trying to earn God's favor by, by keeping the rules, trying to prove our worthiness by our religious behaviors. And it wasn't just legalism, as in you have to keep the rules to be okay with God. It was also culturalism, as if you have to become one of us in order to be okay with God. In fact, these teachers came to be known as Judaizers, because they wanted to add the requirements of the Jewish law to the gospel of salvation by faith and grace. So Paul's upset about it. I'm astonished, he says, that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you. Now this is the only one of Paul's letters in which he doesn't offer words of thanksgiving and affirmation at the beginning. He just gets right to the point. That's how upset he is. That's how, how troubling this is. It's a perversion, he says, a corruption of the gospel message, of the good news that we're saved by grace and by grace alone. It was as if having been rescued from the darkness and brought into the light, they had turned around and gone right back into that cave again. What is it about human beings that makes us want to believe we can save ourselves? That we, can, that we can be good enough. That we can work our way into God's good graces. Why do we insist on thinking we can do that? I came across an interview with a, a well-known political figure from just a few years ago. Uh, he's no longer in the national spotlight, but at the time he was. And a, a fairly highly regarded f- figure on both sides of the aisle, really. When this interviewer asked him about the life to come, this politician said he had little doubt about where he was going to spend eternity. Pointing to his work on gun safety and obesity and smoking, he said with a smile, quote, I'm telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven It's not even close. Well, there you go. (laughs) Now, not many of us would probably be that bold about our own goodness. Not many of us probably have the ego to run for president either, so it's a different kind of person, perhaps. But, But deep down, most of us can't help but thinking that actually we're a pretty good person. We're certainly better than a whole lot of other people and certainly better than the really bad people. So when all is said and done, when it's all added up at the end of things, we're pretty sure, we're pretty hopeful 
we're going to be okay with God. The thing is, heaven isn't for people who are just good enough. And that's actually a good thing. I mean, do you want to spend eternity with people like you? <laughs> people like me? People who get it wrong as often as we get it right? People who are a little bit better than the really bad people? Doesn't sound like heaven. Heaven, the kingdom of God, it's not for good people. It's for forgiven people. It's for people who have been changed and are being changed by the love of God and the work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And once you understand that, once you've believed that, once you've received that forgiveness through faith in Christ, well, now you're free. Now you're free to really live and look forward to this life and the life to come. As Paul puts it, free to live in the grace of Christ. You're free to become that good and beautiful person that you are meant to be, that you want to be, and that you one day will be by the grace of God. That's good news. That's the gospel. And like Molly, many of us, many of us have believed it and been saved by grace. The problem is, the thing is, having been saved by grace we try to live by works. Having been saved by grace, we tend to want to live by works. Like Molly, like the Galatians, we keep slipping back into these old ways of relating to God, this believing we can somehow earn his favor, get him on our side by being good. You know how it works. If I have my quiet time in the morning, God will bless me the rest of the day. If I bring my family to church, we'll have a happy home. If I tithe my paycheck, he'll bless my 401k. <laughs> if I'm good, God will answer my prayers. If I'm not good enough, I'll fast, and then he'll have to answer my prayers, right? We think that way. We start accumulating good works like a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout accumulating merit badges. And we parade them before God and each other to prove how worthy we are of God's blessing and God's favor. Before you know it, we've exchanged the gospel of grace alone for a gospel of good enough, which is really no gospel at all because it leads us right back into performance-based religion that takes all the joy and freedom out of being saved. I mentioned a few weeks ago about this little exercise we had with our staff uh, a month or so ago where we uh, shared with each other who or what we might be if not for the grace of Christ in our lives. Well, one of our pastors wrote this. Without being changed by the grace of Christ, I believe I would have subscribed to the typical societal narratives. More is better. Get what you can because life is short. Work hard. Play hard. Make the Joneses keep up with you, etc. And it would be all about merit and hustle and the fallout and pain that comes when you don't get what you think you deserve and are entitled to. 
And I can't speak for how that pastor relates to God now that he's been saved by grace. But I can tell you how this pastor sometimes relates to God, even though I've been saved by grace. How easily I can slip back into performance-based ways of managing my relationship with God. Did I get up early to pray this morning because I wanted to spend time with God or because I wanted him to bless my sermon? Do I devote myself to ministry because I want to honor God with my life or because I want him to honor my plan for my life? And if I'm not careful, my joy in the Lord begins to rise and fall based on how well I'm preaching or how the church is doing. It's not a fun way to live or a pastor, and it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel, Paul says. And so he warns us in the strongest possible language, don't abandon the gospel of grace. And he reminds us in these opening lines that peace and grace go together, that we have peace with God because of the grace of God. We have peace because of grace. And the grace that saves us, it turns out, is the grace that sustains us. The grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us. The grace that makes us right with God keeps us right with God. And grace alone now, we're going to talk more about this next week as we kind of continue our study of Galatians and, and begin to learn how we actually live by grace, as I've been describing today. Now, I know some of you are already studying Galatians in your groups, and that's great. Dig deep into Galatians. If you're not doing that, can I suggest that you might want to read the book of Galatians sometime this week? It's short, it's just a few chapters. You can read it in not too much time at all. In fact, maybe you want to read it every week as we get ready for uh, the coming message. Just don't expect to get brownie points with God because you read it, okay? Just, just read it. Well, let me finish today with a story that might help pull all of this together, at least it did for me. A couple of weeks ago, Karen and I went out to a local nursery to buy some shrubs for a fall planting. As I backed out of the parking lot, I couldn't, I couldn't really see out the back window, and after backing up a few feet, I, we felt this thud and heard a sickening crunch. Sure enough, I had backed into just about the only car in the parking lot. <laughs> Karen and I looked at each other with one of those, we were having such a nice day looks. I got out to take a look, and the car I backed into was a Lexus, <laughs> a late model Lexus. <laughs> and the crunch had left a dull blue scuff mark on the shiny red paint and misshapen the plastic bumper a bit. I managed to scrape some of the blue paint off and kind of <laughs> push the bumper back together, sort of, but it still showed. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that for a moment I thought about just driving away. I mean, it wasn't that bad, really. I mean, they probably won't even notice, and, and you know, they probably don't even bother with the hassle anyway, and I pretty quickly got a grip on myself 
get thee behind me, Satan, and went off to find the owner, which wasn't hard to do because there weren't many people there. I found the man, Reverend the large, imposing man, who didn't seem all that happy to be shrub shopping on a rainy day anyway, and so I quickly explained what happened, and he didn't say a word. I asked him to come and uh, take a look. We got to the car, and I showed him the damage, which, again, was, was pretty obvious. And I told him how sorry I was and that I'd be happy to pay for the repairs or exchange inf- insurance information, whatever he wanted to do. He bent down for a closer look, and then he spoke for the very first time. He looked at me and said, We're good. Now, I wasn't sure I heard him right, so <laughs> I said again, No, I really am sorry. It was my mistake, and I'm happy to pay for the repairs. And he interrupted me and said, No we're good. This time I heard him, but my thought was, how can we be good? (laughs) I'm not good, I'm an idiot. I just backed into the only car in the parking lot. You can't be good, you just scuffed up your brand new Lexus. We can't be good, I just ruined both of our days. But he clearly didn't want to spend any more time on it, so I apologized again. Gave him my Grace Chapel business card, just in case. (laughs) Didn't invite him to church, which maybe I should have done, I don't know. And that was it. Took my card, and he took my card, went back to his shrub shopping, and I got back in the car and headed for home. I experienced grace that day. Undeserved favor. Unexpected kindness unbelievable goodness. It could have cost me hundreds, if not a thousand dollars. Instead, it cost me nothing. Instead of driving home feeling foolish and embarrassed, I drove home feeling relieved and grateful and free. A ruined day had become a remarkable day. And it was all because of grace, because a stranger who owed me nothing, who took responsibility for my mistake, looked at me and said, we're good. Now, how how tragic it would have been if I had decided to try to sneak away, as if it really wasn't that bad, as if he really wouldn't notice. I'd still be feeling bad, guilty, and ashamed, still be wondering if anyone saw if my sin was going to find me out, and how foolish it would have been for me to go to that man and say, you know, you really ought to just let me off. I'm really a pretty good driver. I'm better than most other drivers. (laughs) I almost never back into people's cars. And how tragic and foolish of us to think we don't need grace. That what we've done isn't that bad. And that besides, we're pretty good people anyway. The only thing left for me to do that day, the only thing left for us to do today is to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Look what I've done. I've made a mess of things. And when we say that to God, 
for the first time or the hundredth time. He looks at us and says, we're good. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Paying the price of our failure by his sin on the cross. Now that's grace. And it's amazing. The grace that saves us and the grace that sustains us. It's the grace that's brought us safe thus far and the grace that will lead us home. Let's pray. As we bow for a quiet moment, I wonder if there's anything you need to bring to Jesus today. Something big or small, or maybe this past week, maybe something from a long time ago. Something you've been running from or ignoring or rationalizing. Something that needs to be named and forgiven. Let me give you a minute to bring it to God and say, Lord, look what I've done, and I'm sorry. We thank you, Lord, for loving us just as we are, even in our sinful, messed-up condition. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us, to bear the responsibility for our failures so that we could be forgiven and free. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who now lives within us, giving us the power and the desire to want to follow you into new and better ways of living and being in this life and the life to come. Thank you for your amazing grace. May we live in it today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.